continuing the uh, chapter on monastic training. This second section is called Parts of a Whole, the Wat Papong Sangha. The community at Wat Papong consisted of monks, novices, postulants, and merchis, white-robed nuns. The majority of the novices were teenage boys, ineligible from taking full monk's ordination until the age of 20. As for the monks, they could be divided into three groups, monks of regular standing, visiting monks, and temporary monks. The main, <coughs> the main body of the Sangha consisted of the first group, those monks who had arrived as laymen and had passed through the designated period of preparation before ordaining. This group might be further divided into new, Navaka monks, those having been in the Sangha for less than five years, middle, Majima monks, those of between five and ten years standing, and senior, Tera monks, those who had been in the Sangha for more than ten years. The second, much smaller group consisted of monks ordained in other monasteries and classified as visiting Akanduka monks. At any one time, this group would include both short-term visitors and monks wishing to join the Watwapong Sangha who were undergoing a period of probation and, ad and adaptation. The third group, usually only present during the rains retreat, consisted of monks who had taken temporary ordination. Lumpur made it clear that, in his view, the only legitimate reason for entering the Sangha in a forest monastery was to single-mindedly follow the path to enlightenment. He would caution the monks, we're not here to become anything at all. In other words, monastic life wasn't about gaining any kind of reward, status or identity. That would simply perpetuate the suffering of the lay life in a new form. All craving, even for Nibbana itself, was to be rooted out. Forbearance was singled out as a cardinal virtue. He said that people found ways to repress or conceal their faults in the world, whereas Dhamma practice opened the inner world up sorry, opened the inner world up wide and exposed all faults. It was hard to endure. And here's Lumpur Chah speaking. Remember, the practice is to look at yourself. Don't look outside, look within. Why? Because we're practicing for enlightenment. Young men and old, we have renounced worldly work to come here to practice. The practice should result in the paths and the fruits. That is, the paths and fruits um, meaning inclining towards and the attainment of the four stages of enlightenment. If it doesn't, then as far as I'm concerned, it's a waste of time. Try to produce these results. Realize the paths and fruits. If it's not a big path, then a small one. Not a big fruit, then a small one. Do it, and don't regress. Let the practice keep inching forward. Don't be satisfied with what you've already achieved. Lumpur said that if any monk practiced diligently, the first level of enlightenment, stream entry, was attainable within five years. A footnote on this says, The Buddha's statement in the Satipatthana Sutta is, Should any person maintain the four foundations of mindfulness in this manner for seven years, seven months, seven days, uh, then uh, by him one of the two fruitions is proper to be expected, arahantship here and now, or if some form of clinging is yet present, the state of non-returning. Uh, going back to um, the uh, uh, standard of having temporary monastics, that was uh, um, something that Lumpur resisted for a long, long time. So up until about, um, say, 73 or 74, then uh, it was very rare 
for him to accept anyone sort of deliberately coming into the monastery for a, a short period of time. And um, it was generally understood that anyone who was uh, taking robes at Wat Bapong was doing it with an open-ended uh, uh, stay in mind. And that um, in, in Thailand, um, taking the robes, um, usually as a man, but sometimes as a, as a, a woman as well, uh, was a fairly common thing to go into the monastery for a few weeks or a few months uh, with the understanding that you were only going to do it for a period of time and then you, at the end of that period you'd step out of the monastery and pick up your um, your ordinary, uh, uh, say, every, uh, everyday lay life. Uh, that was very common in, in other monasteries, but uh, Lumpur Chao resisted that. Uh, in, in Thailand, I'm not sure if other Buddhist countries do this too, but if you're a, a civil servant or if you are a, a member of the military, then every 10 years you get three months paid leave to go into the monastery, as women as well as men. So that if you are a, um, a military officer or if you are a, um, uh, someone in the uh, you know, local government service, then uh, every 10 years you have the right to, to go to the monastery, shave your head, take robes, be in the monastery, and you're, if you're married, then your spouse would be receiving your, your, your wages uh, from, your, from your job. <laughs> Uh, while you're in the monastery, uh, and then at the end of the rains, usually during the rains retreat, at the end of that three months of the rains retreat, then you would disrobe and go back to your job and your family and so forth. So that's uh, very much a part of government policy uh, in Thailand, and I feel it's uh, extremely skillful um, and uh, a way of keeping people connected to uh, spiritual training, keeping them connected to monastic life, and also making sure that the people who are helping to run the country in the civil service or in the uh, military and so forth are people who have a good moral values and have a, a connection with, um, with spiritual practice that can then inform the, the workplace. So that if, you've, if you're an officer in the, in the Thai uh, a, uh, Navy or Army or Air Force and you spend three months in a monastery and then you go back uh, to your, um, your life in the, ar- in the Army or the Navy or whatever, then that's going to have an effect on the way you talk to your, your fellow um, uh, say <coughs> military people or the, the values that you have in terms of the, the work that you're doing, um, also in the civil service. Uh, having to scrupulously look, a, uh, look after all the monastic rules. It's going to give a perspective on bribery or laziness or, or um, uh, social climbing that uh, goes on within uh, most work, work, uh, workplaces. So that uh, I feel it's a very um, skillful structure to have in place in, in Thailand, and I believe it still carries on, and um, that it's a, a very uh, sort of helpful in, in many, many respects, both for the individual and for the society. So anyway, uh, Lumpur, Lumpur Chao resisted that model for a, a long, long time, but um, he became uh, persuaded that uh, to uh, allow that uh, to a certain degree in the mid-70s. So when I came along in 78, 79, then it was already uh, quite normal. Sometimes it would be groups of, uh, say, medical students that, uh, say, part of their, their um, training in the... Uh, from medical school would be a, a whole bunch of them would, would come along and take temporary ordination uh, at Wat Bapong, or people who were um, uh, law students or training for the judiciary that they would come along. And, um, and so Lumpur tended to be quite accommodating for people who were, uh, say, uh, taking temporary ordination uh, uh, with the encouragement of their, their sort of teachers and guides in the, in the university system. But also other individuals, if they wanted, like a local business person or a family person, 
wanted to take uh, ropes with the three months, then he became more accommodating, more sort of lenient in, in that respect. And um, uh, so I, I'm not absolutely sure uh, about the, the, the dates, but uh, that seemed to be around that time, the sort of the early to mid-70s, then that, um, that, that standard shifted. And be before that, he would never take anyone um, uh, who was uh, intending to leave. It was just, uh, if you're coming here, you're coming here, you're coming here to die. Like, that's usually the, the, the questions people say, I, come here, I want to become a monk. And he said, well, have you come here to die? Well, even if I've come here to, to be enlightened, well, have you come here to die? As a, uh, uh, an indication of that, um, uh, we're not here to become anything at all. It's a, it was a, a means of letting go, a means of shaking off your, um, ha your habitual, uh, say, views of your life and your attachments and your value system uh, in, the, in the lay world. And so... Um, sometimes that would take, need a bit of ex explanation when he said, have you come here to die? And I said, oh, well, no, I haven't actually. Yeah, you know, the mosquito is that bad or is the food that terrible? Yeah. But he would explain that it's uh, dying. Um, uh, as he would use the expression, you, uh, coming into the monastic training and spiritual life is, uh, uh, the Thai expression is die gone die, to die before you die. So you're letting go of your your worldly values and your um, your habitual views of things so you're dying to the world in order uh, to facilitate liberation so that die gone die so that you you die to the world before your body actually expires so any questions thoughts on that before i proceed william you're on the brink of saying something well it's just like you know within mindfulness initiative in the uk um, trying to steer government policy uh, to uh, encourage mindfulness into all the sort of streams of uh, life, including MPs. I'm just wondering if there's ever a possibility in this country that would be implemented. That sounds like such a great idea. Three months paid leave for all civil servants, social workers, <laughs> police officers. Uh, military peasants. Um, maybe in 50 years' time, yeah. Maybe when uh, Anagarika Noriko is a Mahateri. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I'd say 20 years at the earliest. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it can happen. I, mean, I feel it's a, it's a very skillful thing. And you know, the, the fact that that Mindful Nation UK program, there was. Um, of the 600 or so uh, MPs in, in Westminster, I think about 20% uh, signed up, they put their names on that and said they supported it. So that's a significant, uh, significant proportion. You know, nearly a quarter of, of the sitting MPs at that time that said, yeah, this is a good idea and I put my name on it, both from the, you know, all different parts of the spectrum of the, um, uh, the Labour and Conservative, Greens and... Uh, and the um, Liberal Democrats and so forth. So it's possible, but I think it's a, we're not quite there yet. We need a few more avowed Buddhist parliamentarians first. And, um, is temporary ordination the form of Upasampada, or is it different? Is it no, it's the same as Upasampada. So that they... 
And so it, it's, and in our community, we occasionally have supported that. So um, Morris Walsh, uh, his 80th, for his 80th birthday, he asked Lumpur Sumato if he could be a monk for three months. That was his 80th birthday present to himself. And uh, his, uh, his name was Mahanamo, which um, was one of the Buddha's first five disciples. And uh, Ajahn Tiradamo, when, when he showed up and saw that Morris was um, receiving Upasampada, the, the ceremony was, was, at, uh, uh, was, was quite a few years ago now. And so Ajahn Tira came from, uh, from Switzerland and saw that Morris was being, uh, was being ordained. And he said, oh, uh, <coughs> so what's, what's, uh, what's Lumpur calling him? And he said, Mahanamo. He said, oh, great name. <laughs> it's a Pali joke. Mahanama means great name as well as great mind. As Ajahn Tiradamo, extremely quick-witted. I was, I was impressed with that. So, and then uh, Tannam, uh, the father of, um, of Peng, uh, he requested, how many years ago was that, that your dad, <coughs> was 15, 20 years? 1991. Oh, 91, so... <coughs> Yeah, so uh, and so Lumpur, you know, accepted uh, uh, once, you know, a few times for people to be uh, receiving a temporary ordination. So usually it would be Upasampada. Uh, sometimes, uh, if somebody wanted to just be in the monastery for a period of time, like uh, at Abhayagiri, there was a, a man who um, wanted to be in the monastery for a year, and so. Uh, he, you know, he was very happy in his marriage and was intending to carry on with that. And and, he, and the couple were both uh, very regular uh, visitors and supporters of the monastery. But he wanted to be in the monastery for a, a year. And so uh, Lumpur Pasano and I just gave him the Anagarika precept. So he was an Anagarika for a year. So it's a bit more... Um, uh, say, uh, of workable, particularly if someone is, is more into their middle age and they're a Westerner and they haven't grown up around Buddhist customs, suddenly jumping into uh, to bhikkhu life. I must say, Morris did a, uh, did a very good job. He was never late for morning chanting once. No. No shame on anyone, but it was impressive. Yeah. 80 years old, never late for, for the morning chanting a, a single time. He, uh, he had a. He was not quite, not incredibly, um, as we say, house proud, in terms of keeping his his room dusted <laughs> and uh, tidy. Was not not his his strongest suit. He was a real book person, so there's piles of books around. But he was very um, scrupulous with Avinia and very very punctual and really put his heart into it. So uh, <clears throat> and similarly for Lumpur Lumpur Cha, if he saw that people were really sincere and they. They put their heart into it, then he was happy to, to go along with that. But if it was um, people just were coming under obligation, they were sort of forced to come along, or the people had pushed them into it, or then he was just like, don't bother, you know, go away. But for, he, he could also see that if it was, say, 20 or 30 medical students being sent along uh, by their faculty, encouraged to, to, say, along with their medical studies, to get a grounding in Dhamma and to, uh, uh, say, improve their, their ethical standards and their, their skill in terms of their behavior and speech and relating to people and developing mindfulness and, and concentration. He thought it was a, good to have doctors in the country who are <laughs> kind of well, uh, well grounded in spiritual practice as well. So they would have a Upasampada and the, um, 
they would have to go through the whole ceremony. They'd have to learn the, the chanting and, and go through the whole procedure in the, in the correct way. And, uh, and sometimes uh, the, uh, if someone really hadn't learned the chanting and, and they, they, they show up for the ceremony for a temporary ordination and, and they haven't learned it, then both, both Lumpur Chah and also after he couldn't uh, do the ceremonies anymore, then uh, Lumpur Mahamon, one of Ajahn Chah's senior disciples, was a preceptor. Uh, he would just send people away and say, no, you don't know the chanting, you can't. You know, they wouldn't just sort of walk them through it word by word. They'd say, no, go away, learn the chanting, come back again. <laughs> so it wasn't a sort of automatic, just because someone had said yes, uh, has had been told, yes, you can have a temporary ordination. They had to actually prepare themselves and, and sort of make the moves. He would urge newly ordained monks to clearly understand that they were embarking on a life that ran counter to old worldly habits. Again, Lumpur is speaking here. Everyone likes to follow their desires, but once you've entered the Sangha here at Wapapong, you can't do that anymore. You've come here to train. If you become a monk and think that you're going to eat well, sleep well, and lead a comfortable life, then you've got the wrong idea. You're in the wrong place. If that's what you want, you should remain as a layperson and support yourself. It would not be easy for the faint-hearted. Only those who are fully committed would survive. Again, Lumpur Chara is speaking here. Those with faith can stand it, however demanding it is. They endure. Whatever the difficulties and tribulations, they persist. Patient endurance is their guiding virtue. They don't just follow their desires. A major challenge lay in avoiding the tendency to identify with the negative emotions stirred up by the training. And again, Lumpur Chai is speaking here. Because we are unable to distinguish between the mind and the defilements, we assume them to be one and the same thing. This undermines us. If we try to go against defilements, then it feels as if we ourselves who are being frustrated. And so we don't do it. Becoming a monk is not an easy thing. It's tough. When outsiders talk about it, their words don't ring true to us. Take, for example, the common view that people become monks due to some disappointment in life. If someone like that arrives, you can tell it as soon as they walk through the gate. They're thinking that monastic life will be restful. But once they've entered the Sangha here, they find themselves under even more pressure than before, and eventually they can't take it anymore. That's how it is. I'm not just talking about other people. I suffered a lot myself but I had a really ardent mind. I wouldn't let myself go on suffering. I suffered intensely. I don't know where all the pain came from. Yet, at the same time, there was also a part of me that wouldn't go along with it. In fact, sometimes, thinking about the suffering and all the difficulties I was going through, I even quite enjoyed it. So that's uh, the sense of being, being stretched. Like, you know, if you're at a, uh, on a... Um, a long hike through the mountains and it's, you know, it's really, really hard work and you're really kind of pushed to, to, to keep up or to keep going, then along with the, 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 uh, the kind of um, demand of making the journey, there's also like, yeah, I'm really glad I'm doing this. Like, oh, how many more miles? <laughs> so there's a mixture uh, of those feelings. But I think it's also what he's um, saying here at the beginning is very significant. We're unable to distinguish between the mind and the defilements. We assume them to be one and the same thing. This undermines us. 
If we try to go against defilements, then it feels as if we ourselves who are being frustrated, and so we don't do it. So that we we be so habituated to following our moods and our impulses, or I want something because it's good, and therefore I should have it. If I don't have it, then that's bad. Um, I don't like something, that's, therefore it shouldn't be there, um, and so it's it's wrong, and I shouldn't have to to endure it. And so we we easily just assume that our uh, everything that our mind says, every thought, every impulse is completely valid and trustworthy, and that is extraordinarily dangerous. <laughs> and so over and over again in Dhamma talks and these kind of instructions, I say, yeah, just because we think it, it doesn't mean it's true. When the mind says, this is good, uh, and, or I need that, that's just the mind saying, this is good, or I need that. It doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's a valid assessment of reality. It just means in that moment, the mind is saying, you know, I need that, or, or that's good. And that... Um, the so much of the training is to help develop the mindfulness to not uh, compulsively or automatically believe our moods, the judgments of this is good, therefore if I have it I will be happy, or this is bad, I've got to get away from it, otherwise if I don't, if this doesn't stop I'll be, I'll be unhappy. To, to develop that um, clarity of, uh, say, vision around our impulses of, of liking and disliking, so that the the Dutanga practices, what in Thai uh, is called Tudong, comes from the Pali Dutanga. The, the Dutanga practices, which is uh, very much a basis of the forest monastic training, they are, are, they are designed to, um, uh, in a sense, amplify the, the, um, uh, the, those feelings of, of desire or fear or aversion, um, and to, to uh, because they've consciously been taken on, this way of life has been taken on, you, you know, you're ready to meet that. So just um, the, uh, um, say, the, the um, Dutanga practice of, of eating one meal a day, so that you, uh, you maybe undertake to, to strictly uh, eat one meal a day, and so then um, uh, a lot of the day you're uh, feeling hungry, or that um, you find your mind getting obsessed with food. And so that... Uh, you say deliberately taking on that as a as a standard, so that you'll know. Oh, when the mind says I've got to have, or um, or that food is the most important thing in the world, you're you're taking on that discipline to, in a sense, get to know that that lie. You say, oh yeah, well, because I'm hungry, my mind is saying food is incredibly important. <laughs> if I wasn't hungry, it wouldn't be saying that. Aha! Uh-huh. So that you're, if you can follow uh, the logic of, of what I'm saying, so that you're uh, you're getting to know the mind making those statements of like, yeah, food is good, I, I must have food, and that you've deliberately taken on the standard of just having one meal a day so that you will be able to hear those voices, to hear the mind saying those things, to feel those impulses and say, well, uh, is, that a, is that true? Is that just a, a passing impression? Is that just because I'm hungry at the moment? And the mind is very convincingly, convincingly saying, I need to eat, and, uh, and I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And so that the, the training then is to be able to recognize, oh, here is the mind saying, I'm hungry. That's it. <laughs> we don't have to go into the, the kitchen or raid the, the, the larder or the fridge or, or um, to, to uh, do anything other than notice that feeling because you also know, well, I'm living in a place where food is provided every day and so if I can uh, live with this hungry feeling, I'm not being crazy about it and going to keel over through malnutrition, 
but uh, you know, tomorrow there will be food available. So right now, this is an opportunity to investigate that feeling of, of hunger and to to, uh, to know it just as a feeling and to train the mind not to react to that, to, to believe in that uh, in a compulsive or automatic way. So that... Um, uh, <coughs> and in the way that Lumpur Cha phrases it here, it feels as if it's we ourselves who are being frustrated. They say, no, I'm hungry, it's bad that I don't have food. Now that is bad. I must have food. It's, it's bad that I don't. But because you've deliberately taken on that discipline, A, living in a monastery, and, or B, taking on the extra discipline of just having one meal a day, you've chosen that. So you've deliberately asked for that, that training. Like, you know, set, again, using the example of setting out on a, a, a long hike through the, through the mountains. You, know, you chose to came on, come on this walk. You knew there were hills involved. So <laughs> there, there's going to be a certain amount of exertion. It's going to take some work to get up those hills. You, know, you knew that, so you, you asked for it. So even though the mind says, oh, no, not another hill... But, well, no, this is what you signed up for. So you're able to, to look at that, oh, no, not another hill feeling, even as you're, you're making that journey. And so that if we're wise, then we, we learn to, to map those, uh, those feelings, to, to be able to, to know them, to understand them, and to not be pulled around by them. So that um, the... Uh, um, uh, if the, the, the practice is used in a skillful way, then it becomes more and more distinct that we can recognize those impulses, those judgments, like, I can't stand this, this is awful. Say, well, this is just the mind saying, this is awful. <laughs> or, uh, oh, and this is the mind saying, oh, no, not another hill. Or the, the mind saying, oh, yeah, but I'm really hungry. <laughs> yes, you might be really hungry, but this is the evening meditation, and there's no food available till tomorrow. So right now, here's the opportunity to look at that, I'm really hungry feeling that's what this is and uh, and then also yeah it's an open system so that if you uh, you you take that on and you realize i can't hack this this is too much then you can change your discipline and go back to having breakfast or you can leave the monastery and go and and stay in a place where supper is legal you know? and uh so that it's uh, the the training is voluntary; it's not imposed. So people are coming, but again, if if people were coming for a temporary ordination, they're asking for training. Then Lumpur would really make it clear: like, no, you're asking to be trained. If you're here, you are asking for training. So don't be surprised if <laughs> then the the living situation and the routine and the standards are uh, say uh, are going to be a stretch for you. They're, they're, that's how it works. That's how that's how you learn. So, um, the, uh, as he said, that people would come and think they're going to eat well, sleep well, and lead a comfortable life. Like, or, I mean, it doesn't really happen very much in the West, but occasionally if people will say, oh, it's all right for you, you know, you uh, monks and nuns, you just come here and you kind of say goodbye to the world, all your troubles are over, it's, it's easy for you. Sometimes people say that, and, and uh, the usual response is, well, come and live here for a week. <laughs> and uh, the... Uh, uh, the uh, assumption that it, it's uh, it's easy um, just because there's free food uh, is uh, is something uh, that uh, people don't see the whole picture. They well, the morning bell goes at four o'clock, and and uh, everyone's supposed to be there for the morning meditation. Four o'clock, really? So then they realise, okay, yeah, there's there's some some aspects might seem easy, but other aspects are very are very demanding, and also. 
simplicity itself, uh, <coughs> living living simply and having you know, no <coughs> no no phones, no uh, no computer, no TV, no radio, and uh, not even any newspapers around. That uh, that can be really a, a hardship for people who are say used to just uh, having a lot of uh, distraction and, and information and entertainment. Longpo warned that if monks didn't know how to take care of their faith, it could crumble. Unrealistic expectations were a great danger. Many young monks disrobed when they realized just how much harder it was to train their mind than they had imagined. Again, Longpo is speaking. So the real, the best foundation, is to live with patience. Patience is essential. You have to go against your habits of mind and trust in the teachings and advice of the teacher. In fact, the practice that led to the best possible outcome, the long-lasting welfare of self and others, was straightforward. It only seemed difficult because of defilement. Everything had been set up to facilitate the training. All that needed to be done was to keep the Vinaya and monastic regulations, to follow the schedule, meditate diligently, and to deal wisely with whatever arose in the mind as a result. The point to be constantly borne in mind was that the goal of practice was to abandon craving. Again, Lumpur is speaking. This craving, people don't understand it, do they? Some people think that once they've gratified the craving, it'll go away. It doesn't. Feeling sated and experiencing the cessation of craving are two different things altogether. Give a hungry dog some rice, one plate, two plates of rice, go down in a flash. By the time it's on its fourth plate, the dog's completely stuffed. So it lays down beside the unfinished plate and guards the rice, eyes flickering. If any other dogs come to eat the food, it threatens them. Threatens them. Grr, grr. Dogs, humans, their instincts are pretty much the same. The abandonment of craving, the cause of suffering, would not be accomplished by force. Again, Lumpur is speaking. The abandonment of craving, the cause of suffering, would not be accomplished by force. Our capacity to abandon attachment to things depends on seeing how fitting it is to do that. When we're able to abandon something, it's because we've seen the suffering inherent in it. We're able to practice like this because we see the great value of doing so. The Buddha taught us to have mindfulness, alertness, and a constant all-round knowing of what's going on, and then to get down to, get down to it. After a period of sitting meditation is over, keep reflecting on whatever you experience. This will become a habit. It will form a condition and a power. Increasing wholesome habits is what the Buddha called progress. The development of meditation has to be like this. Some people are disappointed by their results in meditation. They start thinking that they don't have the capacity to experience tranquility, and so they disrobe. But it's not so easy to get what you desire. You can't force your mind to achieve a state of lucid calm. You have to be cool and unhurried. Persevere with the practice and the teachings. Put forth effort with both body and mind. Downfall in practice comes from not being willing or daring to do it, from not following the teachings, from a lack of faith. Monks were to learn by putting forth effort and observing what happened as a result. 
It was not so important to be proficient in all the technical terms used to describe the process. Lumpur drew an analogy. A lay person offers you a fruit, and you experience its sweet and delicious flavour, even though you don't know its name. Knowing its name wouldn't make it taste any better. So uh, there's a few important themes in there. Um, patience, uh, patient endurance, that's one of the, uh, uh, the kind of, um, almost like the, the family motto or the national anthem of, um, of the forest tradition is uh, patient endurance. And uh, the, that passage from the Buddha's first instruction on the, the monastic discipline called the Ovada Patimoka, which is Kanti Paramang Tapo Titika Nibbanang Paramang Vadanti Buddha. The patient endurance is the su- supreme practice for burning up uh, unwholesome karma. Uh, uh, <clears throat> and so that that quality of patient endurance. Uh, so whenever people came to Lumpur and said, oh, Lumpur, I'm so, uh, I'm so disappointed, my mind is all over the place, you know, I think I should disrobe. He would say, you know, oh, tone, die, mine. you know, can you endure it? Or like, oh, Lumpur, I've, uh, I've, uh, I, I can't forget my girlfriend, she, she, I'm sure she's waiting for me, I can't wait till the end of the Vasa to, to uh, disrobe, I have to disrobe now, today. And then Lumpur would say, you know, oh, tone, die, mine. You know, can you endure it? So... Um, and uh, that oton or endurance is uh, was a very 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 common theme, if not the most common theme. So in that, it's very it's very important to understand um, the the way we use the word patience in English is a there's a, a kind of um, su- uh, a tension or a suffering that's involved in that. Like you're waiting for something unpleasant to be over. So being patient is. A, uh, it's a, there's a quality of, of resolution of, of of strength, but it's you know, there's always a, a negativity or a tension, resenting the unpleasant feeling, uh, begrudging it, waiting for it to be over. So it's uh, there's a strength there, but it's it's uh, pretty much a state of suffering. So the the uh, the quality of uh, it's called patient endurance uh, is the paramita of kanti, which is spelled K-H-A-N-T-I, Kanti. And that is, um, it's, a, it's a parameter, it's a, 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 a means of transcendence, so that it's not a state of suffering. So when we, the, the, the word patience or patient endurance is kind of the closest that you can get in, in English. But it, uh, it's important to understand that, that the parameter doesn't mean just a state of of suffering, but rather it's more to do with the heart letting go of time altogether. That's, so true patience is not a state of waiting. You're not waiting for something unpleasant to be over. It's not just okay. I can endure it. I can. I can wait. I can. Yeah, hang on. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can wait. It's not waiting. So true. Uh, true kanti is not a state of of uh, sort of resenting or, or worrying or um, or it's not involved with, with time. It's a letting go of time. And so it's, it's certainly being open to an unpleasant state. You don't, you don't have to be patient with happiness or you know, blissful, delightful feelings. That's not, it doesn't, uh, doesn't really apply. Um, but we, it's to do with unpleasant experiences, but it's that openness of heart that is not waiting for it to be over. You're not waiting for that difficult, uh, that difficult sensation uh, to go away. There's uh, 
uh, receptivity and openness to it. The mind is not finding anything r uh, intrinsically wrong or bad. It's, uh, it's the openness of the heart to the, the fact it's this way in this moment. This feeling is this way. This conflict is, is this way. This, uh, this hunger, this hungry feeling, is, it's this way. And so that uh, that letting go of time is bringing the heart into a harmony with Dhamma. The Dhamma is timeless, akaliko. So letting go of time is that you're not, uh, say, adding on that kind of attachment onto the, the moment-by-moment -moment experience. So that it's um, this uh, living with patience is encouraging uh, the, the, the uh, say, profound practice of Dhamma. You're really practicing Dhamma, you're being Dhamma. <laughs> but you're drawing upon and, and uh, being guided by that quality of the heart which is already timeless, which is, which is free of, of time. So it's encouraging you to, to discover that faculty, that aspect of the heart which is timeless, which is akaliko. And uh, so it's not just gritting your teeth and being tough, but it's a uh, it's a, a profound surrender, if you like, and uh, a letting go of of um, self-centered thinking. And so that uh, that um, uh, is uh, important to understand in terms of uh, of the way the word patience is used. And the other thing to mention, I think, from this, this reading about is Lumpur's comments about craving. This craving, people don't understand it, do they? Some people think that once they've gratified the craving, it'll go away. Like, uh, as in that uh, one of Shakespeare's plays, Twelfth Night, begins, If music be the food of love, play on, so that, surfeiting, the appetite may sicken and so die. Probably not so easy for everyone to understand. So surfeiting means like... Uh, having too much of it. So if music be the food of love, play on. So he's the Duke, Duke Orsino, I think his name was, is uh, encouraging his, his orchestra in the, in the throne room to, to play because if music is the food of love, play on. So he's, he's in love with someone, but he's tired of being in love. And so that uh, he says, by eating too much, then the appetite will sicken and so die. If I, if I get... More music than I can, uh, then uh, I'll be fed up with this this state of love, and it'll it'll fade away and die. <clears throat> so um, that idea of conquering craving by feeding all of our desires—it's like, um, <clears throat> say, uh, letting the fire letting fires go out by burning up everything combustible in the universe. If you follow that. <laughs> Let the the fire go out by everything that's burnable in the universe being burnt. It's like it's going to be a big fire. <laughs> it's going to take a long time. But uh, the end, uh, as he points out, feeling sated and experiencing the cessation of craving are two different things altogether. So feeling sated, getting rid of rid of desire by by stuffing yourself, <laughs> is one way of getting rid of desire. But it doesn't get it doesn't deal with the root of the desire. It doesn't. Uh, uh, say go to the origin of it it's just a, a temporary sati satiation so that um, in that um, Shakespeare play um, yeah, he wants, he, he's fed up with this, this, the pain of being in love but even if it's temporarily um, satiated you know, it, it'll come back again because the, the causes are still there so uh, as he says the, uh, a dog may be stuffed but it'll lie down with next to the dish of, of the food that it hasn't got room for it'll protect it because it, it wants it later the, uh, 
it hasn't got to the end of craving. So that the um, to uh, to deal with tanha craving, um, the the Buddha's teaching and particularly the teaching on the four noble truths is very much directed at as craving as the cause of suffering. So it's not getting rid of craving by by gratifying it by uh, say getting the, the things that you want, but rather uh, removing the cause of the craving. That's uh, the, uh, the 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 basis of the practice to recognize how how feeling conditions craving and to train the mind to to say no longer create the causes of craving. The um, that of course is not easy to do, but that's why you know hence monasteries, <laughs> hence uh, meditation and you know, spiritual practice, so that the um, <coughs> That uh, is a it's a dynamic that we don't realize. So in a, in the worldly way, we think that um, if we want something, that we're we're in a state of lack, and if we get the thing that we want, then we'll be happy. And we don't realize that that's a, a lie. And I've I've told the story many 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 times of how my very first day in the monastery in Wat Panasha, I'd never even heard of the Buddhist teachings or the let alone the Four Noble Truths um, before that day, and. Um, uh, I just showed up at Wat Pananashat looking for a place to stay in uh, in northeast Thailand, and uh, asked if I could be there for two or three days. And um, they uh, and so the um, the abbot asked one of the the uh, pakao, one of the other uh, postulants, to to look after me and uh, uh, get me sorted. So he explained that uh, you know I knew nothing about meditation, so he gave me a quick rundown on. On, um, on meditation and talked about the, the Four Noble Truths and, uh, and, he, and he talked about how it, uh, you know, that desire is the cause of suffering and that um, the point of meditation was to understand the nature of, uh, of desire, how that worked and to let go of it. And it sounded like a, like a bit of a rubbish kind of teaching to me. It didn't seem very interesting or very inspiring. I thought, well, it doesn't seem very spiritual to me. Um, but okay, that's what these people do. They're, they're, uh, I just showed up here um, out of the blue. I, I haven't booked to stay or anything. Um, but uh, <coughs> anyway, okay, that's what he says. So anyway, um, that evening it was it was the observance uh, day, and so um, they had uh, uh, meditation at the the usual time. So I, and uh, so I sat down in the evening with the, the rest of the uh, the community on the the mat at the back of the of the hall and. So try to to follow the meditation guidance as uh, as this uh, Anagarika as, uh, Peter was his name Anagarika Peter had, uh, had given me, and uh, one of the things he said is that desire is a is a liar, it it lies to us. It says you know you've got to have this or you won't be happy, and um, and I've been wrestling with with the nature of desire and freedom for years and years as a as a teenager and even, as, even before my teens. I was trying to, trying to figure out how we can be free as a human being when you, you always want things. You, you want to do things and you can't do them. You haven't got enough money or it's illegal or you haven't got the, the strength. Or, you know, there's always something in the way. that, that you know, I grew up in a, a very poor family and um, so there was never any money. <laughs> and so that, yeah, that basically you either got what you wanted and you were happy for a, a bit or you didn't get what you wanted. And so uh, I, I couldn't figure out how we could be free. I had a sense that it's possible to be free as a human being, but 
it, it was it was really puzzling to me. I couldn't figure out how did that work, because if you were free, you know, you could do whatever you wanted all the time, and that would be that would be freedom. And nothing would get in the way. You'd be able to gratify every desire all the time, and that would be that would be freedom. That would be happiness. But I, I couldn't I couldn't see how that was possible. Even extremely rich people, there was always limits, boundaries that you were running into. You, you know, you could, you couldn't. You could have piles and piles of money, and you could you could buy lots of things, but then you couldn't protect all the things that you own. People were always coming along to steal them, or, or you you're attracted by someone, but they maybe they're not attracted by you, and uh, so that you uh, you want to be with them, but they don't want to be with you, and so that uh, it's like you uh, you don't get what you want. So it was a, uh, a puzzle to me, and I've been trying to understand that for for years and years, and so when. Uh, the the Anagarika said to me, "A desire is a liar." That you know, you, you um, <coughs> that when you say, "I wonder, I want to have something," you know, it's not it's not uh, it's not true that it's going to make you happy. And so that the the point of Buddhism is to to let go of desire. And I thought, well, that sounds really stupid because uh, <coughs> either you you, know, you don't get what you want, and you're unhappy, you're frustrated from the beginning, or you do get you want do get what you want. And then it makes you happy for a bit, but then uh, you want something else after it. So um, you've, uh, you can only be, uh, you can fulfill desire um, and it can make you happy, but uh, it's, uh, it's not something that uh, you can just sort of get rid of. Or it's like you're going to be frustrated either way, that either you're frustrated immediately, you don't get what you want. Well, you did get what you want, and it wasn't quite enough. Well, you want some more. <laughs> so so uh, th- th- there's, there's never enough. How can that possibly uh, lead to freedom? So anyway, I, was, uh, I just thought, well, he's talking nonsense. This, you know, this Buddha is obviously uh, a, bit of a bit of a waste of time, this, this uh, Buddhism stuff, but never mind. You know, I'm here for a few days, so let's, uh, let's try it out. So anyway, during that, uh, that, the meditation that evening, uh, I also uh, I wasn't uh, aware that in Buddhist monasteries they don't have any supper, <laughs> so I was indeed hungry, uh, sitting there in the evening meditation, and uh, I had this the thought crossed my mind a few minutes into the meditation. Oh, you know, uh, I'm I'm hungry. I'd really like some pineapple. I just come from Phuket, where there's, uh, that was the cheapest thing to eat was pineapple. So uh, I was on a very very low budget. So uh, I had this thought, oh, you know, I'd really like some, some pineapple. And I thought, okay, well, this is a desire. So like, okay, so he said, watch the desire. It's like, okay, I'm watching the desire. I want pineapple. I haven't got any. So, so what? You know, this, is, this is ridiculous. You know, okay, I'm watching the desire. I want pineapple. I haven't got any. So uh, I'm, still, I'm still hungry. Um, how is this supposed to be helpful? Uh, you know, this, this is ridiculous. So at that point, I was not convinced by Buddhism at all. And then about five or ten minutes later, then uh, I realized, oh, I've, uh, I'm not f- uh, I- I've forgotten about wanting the pineapple. And, uh, and that feeling of hunger had gone away. And so then, uh, then the thought came into my mind, oh, I didn't get the pineapple and nothing is missing. So that was a, 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 a that might not sound like very much, but it was a really a, quite a, a, a turning point for for me because it's like oh, uh, five minutes ago it was like 
I want pineapple. If I don't get the pineapple, then uh, you know, life is incomplete. Or I, I'm not happy. And so five minutes went by. I didn't get the pineapple, but nothing was missing. So I said, oh yeah, he said desire is a liar. It was five minutes ago when it said, I've got to have pineapple. Uh, that would be good to, to have that. I'll, that will make me happy. That was a lie. It wasn't true. It was just an impulse passing through the mind. Uh, that was just something that I believed at that moment. That, uh, that I've got to have this, or this is good, and if I get that, I'll be happy. And uh, but five minutes later, it's 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 disappeared. It's, it's finished. So that that very thought, I didn't get the pineapple, and nothing is missing. And it was like this sort of dong, like, you know, the bell in the temple. It was a sort of very um, very much a light bulb moment. And it was almost like my whole life for the for previous ten years or so, I've been trying to figure out how uh, desire worked. I'd never crossed my mind that when I wanted something that that wasn't a, um, a, a real lack. That If I did get to be with this person or I did get that particular um, piece of clothing or I did get to go and visit that place or I did get accepted in that, that college or whatever, then that would be good. It had never occurred to me to question the content of any of those desires. Not once. It just... It just assumed that because I, my mind says that's good, and if I get that, that'll be that'll be pleasing and and a, and a, a wonderful thing. It had never occurred to me to question that. Um, so I simultaneously felt really stupid. <laughs> like, how did I how did I miss that? <laughs> but also incredibly relieved because it was almost like, okay, this is a pathway forward. This is this is extraordinarily helpful. This is amazing because. If uh, if the the mind is just telling these lies and saying I've got to have this or you know this is really awful you can't uh, I can't deal with that if uh, you don't believe in the content of the the desires and fears and aversions then that that indeed makes life a lot more open and so I, it was very vividly clear from just from that that oh this is why this is why it talks about freedom coming from letting go of desire. Oh, right. <laughs> it's not the freedom to fulfill every, every desire. It's not the freedom to gratify every desire. Not having like the money or the power or the psychic abilities to gratify every desire. It's unplugging <laughs> the, the value, uh, uh, unplugging the desire uh, and not believing in, it, in its content. That's where the freedom comes. It's just being able to recognize, oh, this is an impulse going through the mind. So... So I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure if I if uh, uh, that explains it very well. But um, that that is a, a absolutely key principle within monastic training because most of the world runs along the uh, on, on the basis that that uh, every desire that we have is valid, <laughs> and that if you gratify it, then that that's good and that will make you happy. But uh, that uh, trying to uh, to to find happiness or or freedom through gratifying every desire gets very expensive, very time-consuming, <laughs> and uh, exhausting, and, and and it can't be done. And so that the the uh, approach of the Buddha, the freedom uh, to point out that freedom comes from freeing the heart from those those cravings, from not buying into the the content of desires. That's where real freedom can be found. So that was so even though it was literally my first day in the monastery, that was uh, one of the the uh, key reasons why I just stayed from then on it was like you know this is this is this is really interesting <laughs> because it was uh, it was like having a 
uh, being given a key that uh, you know t- that I've been standing in front of a locked door for ten years trying to find my way through it and said, "Here's the key." <laughs> Ding. It was really that that uh, that kind of a, a feeling, that sense of of, um, of uh, changing the the view of how th- uh, how that the mind worked and where a genuine freedom could I- indeed be found. Any questions, thoughts on that? Does that make sense? Rabbi Marjan, so with our desire, it seems, well, for myself, it's like I have to be quite ruthlessly honest with oneself about what they are, you know, how and how you, uh, you know, approach them or gauge them. Or, uh, so, um, you know, over the years, it seems um, the practice has uh, become something which is like, use my own language, it's like a, a guarding my passions almost, you know, like at least this, this is what they are, but then there's a sense of, um, you know, the sealer is the, the guarding of the, these passions, <coughs> and um, I see it as if I allow them to kind of like overspill into the world almost, you know, this is unskillful practice and uh, you know I look inwards and think oh I mean there's more to do <laughs> it's like you said that you can run a certain amount of distance but then there's no more to, I've got no more you know gusto to run but engaging it within the, the spectrum of my capacity if you like mm. so honestly I'm asking is uh, needed yes absolutely to be um uh, to uh, acknowledge the the passions that are there, uh, that as they arise, and, and not to um, sort of be creating delusions around them or excuses around them, but just to be able to recognize: oh, this is fear, or this is aversion, or this is craving, uh, this is jealousy, you know, this is laziness, this is selfishness. To uh, to be as honest as we can. Uh, again, not to create self-hatred or, or self-criticism, but to be recognizing what, what's present. You know, it's like the the this is the the field that you're you're working with, and and so yeah, you can start out with uh, I would I really wish this field was different, but it's like <laughs> this is the one we're working with. So that that uh, that sense of being uh, as as honest and straightforward with with what's present. Um, and that's part of what communi- uh, community life is so helpful for, because we can sometimes not notice the areas of our own attachment, where our fears or our attachments uh, are operating, but we we don't notice them. Uh, we're not aware of them because we're we so habit so sort of unconsciously and habitually we feed those particular defilements or p- those particular attachments. We we don't challenge them, but then living. Uh, in a, a very simple life or living in a communal life, then the, the 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 things that we're not noticing often get brought to the surface by the the people that we live with or different uh, work that we do or the different circumstances of our, our daily living, and so then it gets brought to to your attention that you know what attachments that are are there. So if you um, you <coughs> if you are um, 
And you also need to have a quality of, of alertness, like paying attention and say, oh, I really didn't like that. I'm really trying to, to get hold of this because it's something that I like, or I really want to get away from that because it's something that I feel, I feel, feel really intimidated by. Or, oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of fear there, or there's a lot of uh, desire there, or, the, or there's... Um, <clears throat> so there's a need for that kind of, of being observant and, and watching... The things that uh, that trigger different um, impulses and, and attachments, and so the more that we live under our own steam and we we just have our own mind as a reference point, then the more we can, we can miss whole areas of the, of, um, of, uh, of practice. So the people who uh, say like to to um, uh, say practice Dhamma according to their own preferences and you know, always like to have things set up in their own way you know, they, there can be a lot of development in certain respects but it's easy to sort of zigzag around your your, uh, your areas of attachment the things that you, you absolutely you know, won't uh, won't negotiate to, to let go of that you've always got to have this particular kind of food or you've got to have this particular kind of living situation or this... Um, uh, you know this, uh, uh, say, circumstance for for uh, for your practice, so that um, being as honest as possible, uh, and also just uh, re- recognizing, as you mentioned, the the precepts like a standing guard. That's very much the way that it works because the the precepts, uh, the five precepts in in particular, but the eight precepts in in more detail, they are uh, they're sort of ring fencing the. Uh, instinctual impulses, you know, impulses towards aggression or uh, dishonesty, uh, greediness, um, sexual desire, uh, the, ser- the search for self-advantage. Um, that uh, the, particularly the first four of the five precepts, they are very much there to to deal with the impulses that we have, the sort of non-conceptual animal. Uh, Instinctual impulses for aggression, uh, uh, greed, and desire, uh, sexual desire, and then the the fourth uh, the fourth precept, musavada, lying. We generally lie to get something for ourselves. So it's like deceiving to get so, to pursue self advantage. That's why people lie generally. So that um, the the precepts are, are there to be like a, a ring fence. So if you, uh, I like to use the image of Jurassic Park. We have this, uh, the, all the, the, uh, the, the dinosaurs uh, are kept within the, the, this big walled enclosure within the park. And then a certain accident happens and there's a big hole in the wall and all the dinosaurs get out. And so that the, the reptile brain is the, the source of the, the impulse of aggression, territory, sexual desire, you know, self-interest. There, the the if there's the if if the the wall comes down, then all the reptiles get out and run wild. So that the the precepts are like the ring fencing the reptile brain. That the the aspects of our nature that are easily moved towards aggression, uh, greed, uh, uh, say to uh, take other people's property or take advantage of other people uh, in, uh, or to follow sexual impulses or to seek self-advantage. And the, the precepts is like keeping the wall <laughs> you know, well, uh, well formed. 
And the, the fifth precept is particularly important because that, that's what easily makes holes in the wall, is in the, using alcohol and drugs and such like. It's, it's like deliberately taking the wall down so that the reptiles can run wild. And that's, that's why people drink, is to lower the inhibition, literally, you know, deliberately to lower inhibitions. You, you, know, you, you drink so that you won't be inhibited, <laughs> so that you are letting those impulses you know, run freely. And then the, the kind of chaos and, and difficulty and disaster that uh, follows from that lowering of, of uh, those defenses. It's interesting, uh, when Lumpur Kemadama was giving a talk, uh, uh, I think it was the, not last year, the year before, the, at the Katina here, he made a point that uh, he does a lot of prison visiting. And he said how something, uh, some enormous statistic, like 70 or 80% of people who are in prison, uh, they're in because of uh, acts they perform and they're under some kind of intoxication, either alcohol or drugs. 70 or 80% of, of the prison population, they're, they're locked up because of things they did where they, when they were uh, deliberately uh, reduced their own mindfulness. So the, the uh, s- keeping the precepts and sustaining the, a high standard of, of conduct uh, is extremely helpful because you're not you're not trying just to suppress those impulses, but they the it's like containing the containing the dinosaurs, containing the reptiles, yeah, helps them to be understood. And we can uh, we can understand aggression, we can understand fear and desire and uh, self-centered habits much more easily when they are not running wild. We can we're not suppressing them, but learning to understand how they work and then. Particularly uh, that with meditation, learning that just because you you dislike something doesn't mean you say so you have to attack it. Or just because you are attracted by something, you don't have to to get it. You can recognize the difference between liking and and wanting, or disliking and, and hating. And that um, uh, that's really what brings the quality of freedom. That is that it's freedom from being dragged around by those fears and aversions and, and desires that. Uh, the uh, the the environment of of the monastery makes a a, a kind of a safe container, it's a, a safe crucible, uh, a safe chamber where those um, say habits can be can be understood, can be recognized, can be processed, and that and so, so that it's not through through suppression or, or aversion or fear, but then through but rather through understanding. That uh, those those impulses are, are are known and recognized, and the things that are are destructive can be let go of, and the things that that are beneficial or helpful, then they can be they can be strengthened. Okay, I'll leave it there for today.